God, the great planner, the great designer, the great creator, our Heavenly Father, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has planned great things for his people. And as we look into the Word of God, we know that that certainly is true. When the Apostle Paul arrived in Athens that day, of which Jake read in Acts 17, he found a people there in Athens who were always interested in what was new. They were always asking each other that, as we do, what's new? In fact, the scriptures tell us that they were not only interested in what's new, but they were trying to outdo each other because actually the original says, what's newer? <laughs> what's newer? Have I got something newer to tell you than you have to tell me? And they were trying to outdo one another. But God has promised something really new, some many things that are really new. As we look in the Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament, really it is the Hebrew Scriptures. It is those Scriptures that were given to Israel so long ago. I guess that's one reason we call them the Old Testament. But the Old Testament also speaks many times of God's new things. I'd like to turn to Isaiah 42 for a moment, invite you to turn there. In verse 9, the Lord says, See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Several weeks now in our Sunday school class downstairs, we've been studying about the things that God has told us in his word that describe or explain what he is like. One of the things that we noticed early on in that discussion was God has told us before it happens many things that were to happen later on. We call that prophecy, predictive prophecy. Here Isaiah is telling that word from the Lord in which he says, I am going to declare new things to you, to you people of Israel, he is saying originally, before they ever happen, I'm going to tell you about them. And in chapter 48 of Isaiah, in verses 3 through 7, we read these words, I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them, and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, My idols did them. My wooden image and metal god ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? From now on I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. 
They are created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today, so you cannot say, yes, I knew of them. God is telling his people that he will tell them these new things that are yet in the future so that when they occur and when they come to pass, they will know that God spoke, that it was he, was his power, and that he was concerned that they should know those new things. I'd like to consider with you this morning some of those great new things of God. First of all, a new message. A new message. As we look at the opening of our Savior's ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, let's notice the description that Matthew gives in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. We read that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Here is the opening of our Lord's ministry. He begins preaching good news to the people, the good news about the kingdom of God. He demonstrates the powers of that kingdom yet to come in the marvelous healings that he did. Naturally, this message of good news began to spread among the people, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to witness what he was doing and saying. This is called news about him, as well as the good news that he was preaching about the kingdom of God. But it was not simply that Jesus himself announced the good news to the people, but those whom he commissioned later to do so, and his disciples and believers and followers did the same thing. We read, for example, in the book of Acts, which has a lot to say about this good news. For example, of the ministry of Philip the evangelist as he went to Samaria. We read in chapter 8 of, of Acts, in the fourth verse, that those had been scattered, preached the word everywhere they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many. And many paralytics and cripples were healed. And notice the reaction. So there was great joy in that city. There was great joy. Why? Because a good message of good news was brought to these people, a message with which they could see 
was not simply words, but the power to show the meaning and the purpose of those words was manifested as well. We also read in verse 12 that when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. People were impressed. They were impacted by this message, these good news that were brought to them. The message of the kingdom of God and the message that God has power to bless, to heal, to strengthen, and to save. What good news this was to them. And what good news to us who live in a world as wicked, if not more wicked, than theirs, a time in which wickedness is covering the earth with darkness in every place. And we too find that we need that good news fully as much as they did, and even more, perhaps. But this new message that Jesus was preaching had some very interesting implications that we must look at in passing. In Matthew, the ninth chapter, beginning in the 14th verse, we notice that Jesus was questioned by the religious leaders of that day regarding what he was doing and what he was teaching. Then John's disciples came to him, and these disciples of Jesus were very greatly affected by the Pharisees. They said, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? John, of course, and his mission represent not only the beginning of the new, but a transition from the old. John is, in a sense, the last of the Old Testament prophets, as well as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the Savior. And so John's disciples, who had many practices similar to the Pharisees, say to Jesus, how come we have all these fasts that we do, like the Pharisees, but your disciples aren't following any of that. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old, on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, why did Jesus use that illustration? Well, in the context, we see that John's disciples are representing the old, the old way of doing things, the ritualistic types of things that were done under the law. And they're wondering why Jesus is not insisting that these things continue on. But in effect, he's telling them, 
I have come to bring something new, a new message, a new way of life, not the old which was under the law, which was written on stones, but as Paul later develops it, a law which will be written on the heart of those who receive the gospel of Jesus and receive him. And so he says, you can't put it, uh, you can't sew a, a cloth or a new patch on an old garment because it'll shrink, it'll tear away from the garment. Nor can you put new wine in old bottles, old skins. It'll burst them. The new wine must be put in new wineskins. Christ is teaching a new way of life to these people. In fact, as the writer of Hebrews writes many years later, <clears throat> in ver or chapter 10 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, notice that, a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, through that curtain that hung, as it were, on the temple, which he says is his body. It represents his body. And since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. He says we have a new and living way to enter into God's presence. Not the old way, not the law, not the temple, not the priesthood, all of that that was under the old law. Those are all shadows. And the writer of Hebrews develops in detail the idea that the sacrifices, the priesthood, all of those things were simply shadows and types pointing and illustrative of the time when the great high priest, Jesus himself, would offer the one sufficient sacrifice, his own self, on the cross, opening, as he says, a new and living way into the presence of God. That's why Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. That's the reason. He is the one that God has ordained to be the means of salvation. And there is no other name given among men under heaven, says Peter, whereby we must be saved. If we're going to be saved at all, it must be through Jesus Christ. Not only is there a new message, but there's a new life for those who receive that message. You must be born again. Jesus' own words. The words he spoke to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, a new life was necessary. But even that promise of new life 
was not confined to the what we call the New Testament, but it is also found in promise in the Old. Ezekiel, long before that, had said in the 36th chapter of Ezekiel, in the 26th verse, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel here is speaking primarily to Israel, to the Jews. But to them was given the promise and the prophecy that someday God would so deal with them that he, they would receive, as many as would, a new heart, a new spirit. And that's why in John 1 we read that though he came to his own and his own received him not, to those who did receive him, to those who believed on his name, he gave them the power to be sons of God who were born, he says, not of flesh, nor the will of the, of the flesh or of a man, but of God. Born again of God, of his spirit. A new life. A new life. And so as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. In Galatians, the sixth chapter, the Apostle Paul deals with a problem that was a very serious one in the early church. After the gospel had been preached to the Gentiles, there were certain Jewish teachers who had believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but who believed that the Gentiles must be put back under the Mosaic law. And so they went among these Galatians where Paul had preached the gospel, and they told these Galatians, you have got to accept the law, you've got to be circumcised, and keep the law if you would be saved. But you'll notice Paul says to these people, after he gives this whole letter showing how wrong that is, in verse 15 he says of chapter 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean, means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. That's a very important statement. It's a crucial one. Paul says it's not whether you're circumcised or not that matters. Not whether you are putting yourself under the law or not. What really matters, he says, what really counts is a new creation. You have got to be a new creation, says Paul, by the power of God, or it doesn't matter. Nothing else really matters. He says that's what counts. What counts is a new creation. Great new things are planned. That's one of them. To become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And even when we think of this matter of baptism, which we noticed there in Acts 8, that when people heard that good news and believed that they were baptized, both men and women, 
But in chapter 6 of Romans, where Paul discusses baptism in the first four verses and mentions that those who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. In verse 4 he says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, notice this, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's not simply that we were baptized. You know, anybody could go down into the water and come out again. But the point he is making here is that that was done in order that those who accepted the Lord and gladly obeyed him in baptism were to come forth, as he says, to live a new life. A new life. That's what God is really looking at. He's, yes, he's telling us to believe and be baptized. That's fine. But after having done that, are we living that new life? Is, is it true that we have become a new creation in Christ so that we can say things are different now? Something happened that day as we sing when I gave my heart to Jesus. Is that a reality or is it not? And I would submit that we are simply fooling ourselves if we have not experienced that new creation and that new life and that new birth which the Bible is telling us about. The Apostle Paul also gives us a description of what that new life is like when it is lived out in the Spirit of God. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 22, he says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Notice this newness has to do with attitude, has to do with your mind. That's what he's pointing out here. And to put on the new self created to be like God in, the true, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Do we lie? Do we tell falsehoods? Do we spread rumors without being sure that it's true? Do we spread them anyway? For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. We do get angry sometimes, don't we? In that anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Oh, how easy that is to do by words and attitudes that are wrong before the Lord. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. These are just practical things to show whether or not a change has occurred in our lives. 
Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. How beautiful a picture Paul gives us here by the Spirit of God and by inspiration of what the Christian life really is. All these attitude changes, all these value changes, all these goal changes that are involved if there is a new life, if there is a new creation in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Peter put it very succinctly there in 1 Peter, the second chapter and the second verse. He says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Here it is. That you may grow up by it in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. These people already knew the Lord. They had tasted that the Lord is good. Now he says, grow up in him. Keep on growing. Don't be satisfied to remain a babe. Grow. Eat the food that's necessary. Crave pure spiritual milk. Spiritual food. He's not using the word milk here in the sense that the writer of Hebrews is using it in contrast to meat. He's using it in, simply in the idea of food that we need, spiritual food, to grow and grow and grow. And all of us can grow. Pointed out this morning in our class that Paul pointed out that if any man thinks he knoweth anything, he knoweth it not yet as he ought to know. So all of us can grow in our knowledge and in our faith and in our righteousness before God. And I don't mean our own righteousness, but the righteousness which God can develop in us through his spirit. There's room for growth. Let no one say, I have arrived. Paul didn't say it, even at the end of his life. He said, I press forward that I may take hold of what God has taken hold of me for. Going back to that day in Athens, recorded in Acts 17, we find that the Apostle Paul gave these Athenians a new hope, a new hope. For we read that he began to speak to them about the resurrection and about Jesus, verse 18. Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. The Greeks didn't care much for the idea of resurrection. They were so enamored of Plato's teaching about the immortality of the soul that the resurrection was almost in, unacceptable or incredible to them. The idea that this person who had been laid in the grave could physically rise again 
and live and walk around as Jesus did after his resurrection when he told his disciples, this is me, handle me and see, it is I myself. For a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see I have. This was really Jesus. And now here comes Paul preaching to these Greeks. Resurrection. Literal bodily resurrection. Incredible. Unacceptable. To many of them at least. Some of them laughed we're told here. Nevertheless some of them did believe we're told. Some of them did accept. They did accept the hope that he was giving them of the resurrection. For we read in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And we read that a few became followers of Paul and believed. Not many, but some did. Some accepted that hope of the new life and the resurrection yet to come. But not only a resurrection of our own individual being, but a hope of a new world, a hope of a new order of things, which is yet to come. The Apostle John described it in Revelation 21 so beautifully in those first few verses. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or, cry, or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Write it down. And he did, and we just read it, what John wrote. Because the old order of things is going to pass away. It's going on right now. That old order is still going on. People are saying, where is the promise of his coming? For all things continue as they were since the beginning of the creation. It's all going on just the same, say they. But God has promised, as he says here, a new order of things, a new earth, a new city of Jerusalem, which will come down from God out of heaven and rest upon the new earth, the restored earth, the changed earth, the transformed earth. For God is making a new creation, and he's starting out with you and me. He's starting out with individuals who will accept and receive his son and his message and be renewed and born again in Christ. And then from that nucleus, he goes forward to establish a new order, which he will do when Christ comes.
and when Christ establishes the kingdom of God in its fullness. So great new things are planned. We can have a part in God's new way of life and his new promises, his new world, if we will. To all that received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God. To those who believed on his name, to those who were born, not simply of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Receive and believe God's great new things. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for your Son, our King and Savior, the one who will come someday to rule this earth and who will establish those times of restitution that will bring about all those new things that you have promised. Father, we pray that you will send him soon as you've promised and that those new things will begin. But even now we thank you that in Christ we are renewed and that we can find newness of life day by day through your Spirit. We pray that if there are those here who are under conviction regarding this, that they will make that known, that they will seek to uh, accept that message and to accept your Son and prepare for that new life that is available in him. Go with us now from this place and keep us faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.